Welcome, everyone, to episode five of Raw Sport. Myself, Amr al your host, and my co-host every week, Mr. Tony Sheehan, joins me. Tony, how are you, buddy? How's things? Ahmed, what a morning after the night before. Check out the national newspaper here in Sydney. Have a look who's on the front page and have a look who's on the back page. The number one player in the world has made a triumphant return with a 2-0 victory over Denmark last night at Sydney Football Stadium, Australia. 75,000 people packed, packed the stands, great atmosphere, the whole country watching. What are your thoughts on the on the on the actual game? Look, I think Australia um, is actually in the in the grips of uh, Matilda's mania, and I was reluctant to say this a few weeks ago. Yes, we had an amazing crowd for their first game of this World Cup here in Sydney. Maybe a little bit died off. I'm just trying to work out whether the Sam Kerr hype lived up to the output, which we'll touch on in a second, but. If you isolate just the Matildas on Australia at the moment, they've been nothing short of amazing. Uh, they have gripped the country. And I think a lot of people have been reticent to really get involved in supporting the Matildas. And what I mean by that is, yes, we're all patriotic from, you know, from the Prime Minister down to the sporting fans and to all the supporters. But I think now that the Matildas have proven to be as good as they are and through to the round round of 16 following their 2-0 demolition of Denmark last night, I think now that the real swell of support is building. Interesting. As a game, as a, um, as a national team, right, the Matildas have given us many reasons to, you know, support them and follow them. One of the issues that some may say, these are naysayers out there, they say to you, oh, I mean, it is a World Cup and it's in Australia, so of course they're going to get all this support. But uh, does the other side get the same support? The men's uh, team, does it get the same support as the women's team? Is that a rhetorical question or a question? It's a question. People that on the street are saying this. People are saying, do the men's team get the same support as the women's team? We've seen a lot of investment go into the women's team in new facility, a new home ground out in Victoria. Um, a lot of investments gone in, into, into the Matildas as of, as of recent. Okay, Are we seeing the same for the men's team who don't even have a home ground? But I thought that was they were on equal footing by way of um, home ground and facilities. My understanding was that there was a story written in one of the national broadsheets last week that said the Matildas don't have a home base. They do have a home base. It's the Victoria, the same site as the Victorian, as the FFV out in near La Trobe University. Oh, and in Bandura, yeah. where uh, Melbourne City trains. Yeah, it used to train. Yeah. Melbourne City is in Casey now. That's their, their dedicated not, facility. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I mean, it's on the outskirts of Melbourne. Yes, it's probably a um, high-growth area where a lot of mums and dads are soccer-oriented. But I would have thought you would move something closer to the city to be in the hub within arm's reach of the MCG. Yes and no. Obviously, they've built something out there that they've dedicated to the Matildas. 
Do the Socceroos have a home ground? No, they don't. Why not? I don't know. I mean, they can either play at the Lakeside Oval in South Melbourne, there where inside the Grand Prix track, or they train out at the Homebush Stadium where the Matildas played last night. Well, this is my problem. My problem here is, okay, we all want to support one another, but there's this clear distinction and divide that's been created by these institutions. Yes, I'm going to get political here. That's why it's called raw sport. These these institutions are are creating a political divide between men and women and the teams because now, before the, the... Men's World Cup, they had all this stuff about Qatar and all this political lobbying that they involved in the game. And then Qatar turned out to be the best World Cup that we've seen. Not not by me, not me saying this. Pundits all around the world saying this, from Ibrahimovic to Rio Ferdinand to all these huge names around the world. Moral of the story is this. They've turned the game so political, a game that is struggling on the men's side here locally because of this political divide. Without the politics, it was struggling. Now it's increased. Why? Why are, Why is this happening? Why are we doing this to, to the world game here? Why are we putting someone on a pedestal and why are we bringing some, some others down? Not saying it, but your actions speak louder than, than your words. Well, who's putting who on a pedestal? The female game has been put on the largest. Of course, it's a World Cup, and I'll say this again: I I totally get it and I understand it, right? But what bothers me is that how come these facilities now are being provided as dedicated facilities for let's say the the Matildas? The men don't have nowhere to 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 actually call a base. And Graham Arnold, after the World Cup, said the same thing: we need a home ground. Why can't the men have their own base? Why? Well, I think it is political. You said that at the top of your statement, and I'll tell you why. Is because FIFA is part of the, obviously, the, the head of the world game, but also the people who determine what happens current day and in the future want the women's game through be it soccer and or AFL and or tennis is already an equilibrium to the men's and or the NRL and other sports. They want it to be equal to the men, therefore to have equal footing so that men and women are on pay parity and that more women get involved in the workforce, the sporting game, and then they become um, taxpayers. So therefore, men and women are all the same across the world and you're less likely to have babies. I mean, that's, that's definitely a view. But what... what... Well, it's probably controversial and conspiratorial, but if you wait three to four years, you will see the global plan to have women and men on equal footing and to reduce men and women having babies and therefore for more women to become taxpayers. So let's keep it sports. What, what, what we're looking at here, right, is we have sporting bodies around the country who are being directly um, prejudiced and biased to one side over the other, right? Where we know where all the revenue comes from for these associations, it comes from the men's game. Because why? Because the men's game generates more revenue than the women's game, right? 
IFL and the NRL. Sorry? Same as the IFL and exactly. the NRL. So there's nothing wrong with having the women's game. We, we, we are not against that here. What we're saying is, right, don't start playing this game where, oh, the women have to have this, 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 and the men are going to be neglected. We're not in that business. We're in the business of whoever generates more gets paid more. Both need equal facilities, equal services, no problem. But in terms of pay and in terms of, you know, uh, in, in terms of revenue, we know who generates more and why they generate more. For God's sake, you got under 15 teams building the best women's team in the world, the, the US national women's team. So what are you talking about? What are you trying to show me here? What are you trying to do here? So again, we're, we're, we're going on into these, these fantasy worlds and we're moving away from reality and what's happening. And it just rubs me the wrong way. And that's why I haven't watched a single game of this World Cup. So based on that outcome and that shock revelation, what is your antidote? My antidote is this, right? We treat each other equally. And what we do from what what we do is we give people based on what the, what they put in and put out, not based on virtue signaling and so-called values that have been made up in the, in, in in the last twelve to eighteen months. So what you're saying is you want women and men to be equal, but you want whoever creates the biggest outcome by way of ratings and revenue should get the largest portion. Exactly. Okay. Fair enough. Exactly. So. That's my that's my that's my two cents on the whole women's world cup and so on and so on. Two cents. That's your twenty thousand dollars. That was strong. Always strong. Anyway, moving on. Our next talking point is one that created some controversy recently as well. Sam Kerr, biggest Australian star. She came back last night from 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 what I've heard, decent performance, nothing special, of course. Come back from injury, bit tentative. That's normal. Right. I'll let you take over. Well, Sam Kerr is probably, arguably, the world's greatest footballer. And, female footballer. And I mean that, female footballer. Yes, female footballer. Yeah. She came on in the 79th minute to a standing ovation. She created an electric atmosphere purely based on the woman herself. Now, I know there's all of her teammates have been playing for the previous 78 minutes. But the entire country, if not the women's world supporters, were waiting for Sam Kerr to make her first appearance in this year's World Cup. And didn't she make an impact? When she ran on, the whole stadium erupted. I had friends there that said it was akin to going to a finals AFL match. Such was the noise and the electricity in the atmosphere. It was amazing. She came on. Her first possession or her first... Um, Interaction with the ball. She kicked it with her left foot, which I think was her bad calf, which is why she has missed the previous um, three games. And it went out of bounds. But once the cobwebs were off, and I think her nerves had dissipated, she then got involved in the game. And as soon as she um, interject, interject, not interjected, as soon as she became part of the game, you could tell her superiority and professionalism was almost above anybody else on the field. Just the way she move, evade, control the ball, you could tell that she was something above. And the other thing which I picked up is 
her pink Nike boots made her stand out against the rest of the players, both from Australia and Denmark on the field. So did the output measure up to the uh, pre-game high? Uh, I think a lot of people questioned whether she should have even come on, considering Australia was up 2-0 over Denmark and she could have been given more rest time in the lead-up to the next game on next Saturday night to into the round of 16, where we face France or Morocco. But I think to get the cobwebs out of the way, Kerr showed enough and didn't look like there was any hindrance to her calf. There was a slight scare, I think, um, after I think in the sixth or seventh minute, correct me if I'm wrong, where she actually slipped over and might have hurt her groins or her, um, or her thighs. But she seemed to brush that off and then made some more inroads into the uh, field of play. And I thought she actually did a really good job considering her lack of match practice and she invested in the uh, in the game and came out of it unscathed. There you go. Great assessment of her, of her um, performance last night. Um, awesome. Great to hear. She's back. She's a, a part of the team. She'll be she'll be a good asset for for the team moving forward, especially if they have. Could you be a little bit more enthusiastic? If they had any, um, if 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 they have any chance of winning this World Cup, they need they need to play. She's a star. There you go. Awesome. Moving on. Um, a big conversation actually that's happened over the years is why the AFL doesn't go into private ownership. A, a, a lot of commentary has come across talking about saying that we're too small of a country, we can't have private ownership, we're this, we're that, our population is not big enough, uh, we don't have enough millionaires, billionaires who have who would buy AFL clubs as alternative assets without throwing the kitchen, ki their kitchen sink at, at them um, and feeling the financial impact if that club did, did not do well in, in the short term and long term. Like in other countries, billionaires are buying these sporting teams and whether the team does well or not well, it doesn't, you know, it's not detrimental to their day-to-day. -day. Uh, they're pretty much alternative assets. One of the whispers that's been going around town is that the GWS has some interest from American, potential American owners, potential high-flying Americans who are who share some interest in our game and are looking to get involved with the GWS Giants, something that you know very well of, Mr. Sheen, like you do, like you've done in the past, you're breaking news once again. Yeah, that's right, Armand. And let's not detract from the amount of wealth this gentleman has. He was a former US White House advisor. His name is Mark Seidner. He's a US-based billionaire. And we can reveal on Raw Sports today that he was out watching the Sydney Swans and GWS Giants game Saturday night. His interest has come back to the point where I think he potentially may make another offer, along with his PIMCO executives, to buy the team. I can tell you that on Sunday, where the team gathered to watch Jake Paul and Nate Diaz, where we'll talk about a little bit later, the Giants team gathered along with their CEO, and Seidner, and I asked somebody who was present at this function why Mark Seidner was actually back in Sydney, and they said, we hope to buy the team, which is huge news, Armand, 
should it be back on the agenda with the AFL? And will the AFL allow it to happen? I think it won't. I think the AFL is a has the model of of a nanny state. They have to be in control of everything. If they're in control of logos and assets that these that these clubs have that they can't even monetize on without giving them some sort of percentage, I find it very hard to believe that they're going to let them let American owners come in and start buying up AFL clubs. Um, no matter how much of a burden the, the the giants have been on the actual AFL, because that'll set a precedence, and American billionaires are looking for sporting assets around the world to purchase. Just look at the Premier League, look at the Italian Serie A, look at the German Bundesliga, all around the world, American billionaires are looking to buy alternative assets, sporting teams, which are going up in value all around the world, except in this country, because the leagues have such a stranglehold on these teams and they, they determine whether they grow or whether they sink or swim. Um, That's a really good assertion from you and it's actually a very interesting one considering how it could affect the future, be it positively or negatively, on not only the Giants but other teams within the AFL. So the way I look at it is this way. How come the AFL hasn't invested in international expansion like it has invested in local expansion? They have. They haven't. Because let me tell you what, they went to China, right? They went to, um, I think they've had one game in the States or they were yes. or they were going to. And they said that they were going to set up this academy in, in LA to start, you know, picking up all this talent from, from, from the US, which has multiple sporting layers for talent to, to come through. Now, did that happen? No, they played, I think, New Zealand, China. Um, I think there was an exhibition game in the United States. Okay. But did, did, did the academy happen? No, it did not. Okay. So this is this is my this is my 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 problem with this. Okay. You have the NFL selling out stadiums in Germany, in in uh, in England and yep. and other emerging markets that, that they've targeted. In Germany, there was a request of a million tickets for the NFL game. The stadium only fit 90,000 people, right? So it's taken the NFL a long time to do this, but they've invested in the European Football League, right? Which yep. is the which is the NFL in Europe. They've invested in, in they've invested in all these other markets, allocating teams to different markets around the world. Like the LA Rams is allocated to Australia. Other teams allocated to the UK, to Germany, to you know all these different markets around the world. Now, where, where has that happened? We've gone and played exhibition games in in these different countries, and then we've just gone, boop, nah, that's enough, too costly, too expensive. Meanwhile, in 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 uh, in in the Sunshine State, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a team that's never played finals, right? It's in the Gold Coast. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not against that. But if you really want to be something of value and an asset to, to the world, like we, 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 we can't, we have to get out of our little bubble. I get it's the Australian game. We started AFLX, we cancelled it the next year. It created a lot of excitement, buzz, hype. You won, people were interested. 
maybe they didn't do what they thought it's going to do, but who cancels something after, after one year, right? So more of the story, that model could have been taken elsewhere around the world. The game could have been adjusted for those markets. And, and then these leagues could have started. There's so many expats of what in these different countries that you could be a part of this. Now the problem is they're, they're playing these games. I was in Boston one day and I see a group of Aussies kicking around the show and I went and spoke to them. What are you doing? Well, all professors, students, professionals from Australia. It was, there was like 50, 60 of them. So more of the story is we need to put our big boy, big boy pants on, right? We need to get rid of our insecurities and start operating with the world and not just, you know, being this, these many leagues that have control over every single step like the rest of the world has. I totally agree with you. Now, I've actually seen um, a secret document from a board member from an AFL club who has put a 10-point plan together, which he intends to deliver to the AFL executive. And one of these, or actually two of these, is to play a home and away game in Hawaii at least once a month over the home and away season. Now, I know people might turn around and say, well, Hawaii's 10 hours away. What about the jet lag, et cetera, et cetera? Now, to combat this, he's suggesting the AFL should invest in one or two private jets and fly two teams over there at least once a month to play in Hawaii, which is not part of mainland America, but it's still part of the USA, Why? to build the Why Hawaii? Why not go to Los Angeles where there's thousands of Aussies? Los Angeles hours away. Yes, you you got a private jet. What's once one once you're in there? What's what's an extra four? It's actually 13 and a half hours away from here, right? I've done that trip many times over. Why wouldn't you yes. go to one of the, the fifth biggest economy in the world, which is Los Angeles, which is California? The heart of Los Angeles got Aussies everywhere. Okay. Yeah. And they have circles of friends around them. Why not think that way? Why why not go to LA? Why not invite the Aussies, invite their circles of friends with them? Think of the network effect that, that, that could occur here. Why wouldn't we do this? Well, I think, I'm not saying why wouldn't you, but I'm thinking that to begin with, why wouldn't you trial a few home games in Hawaii? Because which is it's, closer to it's this dead. Point? It's dead there. There's nobody there. There's no... no if you, it's a huge economy. They may not have a lot of locals, but they've got a huge tourist economy from... Japan, Korea, China, Australia, Fiji, the Philippines, Singapore, Hong Kong, again, and mainland America. Again, mainland America, LA. Imagine taking a team, team to LA, having them go to the Hollywood sign, do a whole PR campaign, PR release, the Australians have arrived, right? The biggest football league in Australia, the iconic Santa Monica Beach, Venice Beach, you know, have have activities there, have a presence there. That's the hub of LA, right there, right? Go do all the all, all the PR of all all the networks, ESPN, Fox. They're all there. They're all there. They're all stone throw away. Yeah, but I, I think it's good in theory. But I think if you are going to do a PR campaign, like you and I have just discussed about going to Los Angeles, rather than yes, I think you know having twenty two players at the Hollywood Sign or Santa Monica is great for a one off. But you, you need the players to become part of the culture, to be part of the soul of Los Angeles rather than just doing 
three days of PR, which is fantastic, but then it it dissipates because that team will leave and another team will come in or that team won't come back for another six to eight weeks or months. I think you need to become part of that culture. Now, I'm not saying base an Australian team there, but have a continuance whereby the Los Angeles people get an affiliation with who they are and the colours and how it's the game is constructed and the celebrities and the profiles of people who are going there. There's Australian cafes all over LA, literally. That there yeah. are. I've lived there myself. Literally. I agree with literally. you. And we're not saying take a team there. What we're saying is that use this as an opportunity to every year host a game there, but build the infrastructure around a local league starting there because there's so many of us there that will drag others into the game from the local Americans and so on. Yeah, that's how I, that's how I, I would personally do it. Is here we are. We take our feature game every year there. We can play at the LA Rams Stadium, SoFi Stadium, an amazing new stadium. LA Rams can do the same. Come back and play here because they're trying to target the Australian the Australian market. So it works for us and it works for, works works for them. Then you set up, you start working on setting up local leagues in LA. Americans some have some of the most talented athletes in the world because of their three-tier sporting system, high school, college, and then pro, the pro leagues. They're all set up from day one. You go through this system. The college league is bigger than the Australian AFL and NRL league in terms of media rights and participation and audience in any way, shape, or form, right? So you have this tiered system that's already there. Why wouldn't you make the most of it? And they're very open to working with Aussies. They love Aussies, right? It's about understanding how to establish those, those relationships because you're scratching their back and they're scratching yours because they need your market too, right? So it all ties in. But it's about putting the different pieces together and going there and making sure that this stuff does, does actually happen. I agree. And just to digress for a moment, to go back to the original discussion point, if Seidner and Pimco and his other group of US billionaires are to make a serious play and put in an attractive offer for the GWS Giants, what's it worth? An AFL team like the Giants? Well, not like the Giants, the Giants. Yeah, like the Giants, the Giants. I'd say about... 40, 50 mil. What? Well, okay. By comparison, what's Collingwood worth? Collingwood's a different ballgame altogether. Yeah, but what are they worth? 100? No more. 300? I reckon 250 to 300 mil. Yeah, but so based on your estimates, if the Giants are conservatively worth $50 million, why wouldn't the AFL take that money and then reinvest 75% of that back into the game and or the US market? I agree. In my opinion, any AFL team, any AFL, the starting base should be around the forty to to fifty million dollar mark, minimum. Yeah, but the AFL isn't investing enough back into its game. It just seems to accumulate all of this wealth without reinvesting. Non-profit. So we talk about non-profit. Exactly, which is you know in um, legal terms, it's a uh, charity. The other point being, in regards to the AFL and its investment. And I know we're, we're off topic, but has withdrawn its services from the 2023 AFL Grand Final 
pre-game and half-time entertainment. I've seen that, actually, yeah. Now, as good as Spouted House is, how can we go from Robbie Williams, who is one of the greatest entertainers on the planet, back to a New Zealand-based Australian band called Crowded House? Now, I'm not taking anything away from the Finn brothers and the other band members, but surely we're at a stage now where on the potent- we're potentially looking at a night grand final and we've just had Robbie Williams, surely we've got to go to an international act, be it Springsteen or I don't know. I mean, I know we had Sting a few years ago or get Beyonce or Eminem. But- saving the pennies, mate. They're saving the pennies for a rainy day. Yeah, but that's rubbish. I mean, because it, this is a world sport now and people compare Australia's entertainment to the rest of the world. The whole world stops for four hours on Super Bowl Monday, Super Bowl Sunday, and they're... The investment in the acts that they show have so much benefit to not only the broadcast, but the singers and the local community. And it's also a political statement with so many underlying um, uh, things, agendas. Yeah, absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, more investment has to go into the game's expansion overseas and even locally, especially these events. They have to really be events. Of course. Huge events. They have to be international events. Get out of this local mindset, start thinking into international and start working that way. Yeah. So, but I think we have to keep going because we're very tight for time today. Which is one more quick one. Yeah. One more quick. Do you think KISS could be um, a good fill-in for um, Crowded House? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Why not? That's settled. Absolutely. Moving on. Um, this one's a really interesting one. We're staying on AFL. Gillian McLaughlin and one of the AFL powerhouses, the chairman of the commission, Mr. Goiter himself, apparently there's whispers that these guys are recommending um, Patrick Dangerfield to join the commission, the AFL commission. Now, this like baffles me because there's a huge conflict of interest here. He's a player that's playing. Not to mention he's the current president of the the AFLPA, and now he's, he'll be moving into a commission role and he's playing. How does that make sense? How is he going to separate his decision making from being a player to being an executive in the interest of the wider game than to you know his his better interests? How, how, how does that make sense? Yeah, look, I'm not sure. I think if you look at it. From an overview, yes, it's a conflict. If you look at it in isolation, it could be beneficial. But we don't how know so? Whether... How so? You tell well, us how. Because Please. the commission has never had a current player overseeing the AFL game of football. Now, Gil McLaughlin is the outgoing AFL chief executive. Richard Goiter is the chairman, as you so eloquently described. Why is it such a bad thing for Dangerfield to join the commission? We don't know whether he's got five weeks left in him. If he retires and they've sounded him out prior, who knows? Or does he play on next year? There's a conflict of interest, that's why. And just because it's never been done before, it doesn't mean it's it's a good idea to, to be done now. Yeah, but but is it, well, I think he needs to get rid of the Players Association presidency in the first instance. I think I don't see a problem with him joining the commission, provided that it doesn't conflict with Geelong and or Adelaide, who we used to play for, and there's no obvious conflict. How, how can it not? Oh, well, I'll give you an example. What about Eddie Maguire being a media 
Leviathan and being the president of the Collingwood Football Club. It's a bit different because the, the media rights are not, 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 not negotiated by him. They're, well, they're, they were, were in part. They're negotiated by fifteen other, by 17 others as well as a commission and the, and the governor's team, the um, AFL corporate team. Sorry. If you can suggest to me why it's an obvious conflict for Dangerfield to join the commission, I'm listening. He's a player. So what? How does he separate his interest as a player from the interest of the of, of the wider game? Well, they've got eight businessmen on the um, eight businessmen and women on the commission. How is it not a conflict when Richard Goiter, the chairman himself, he's the chairman of the AFL, he's also the chairman of Qantas. And yet the league's travel partner is Virgin. How is that not a conflict? What does that mean? He's doing a good job. Well, it's because, a conflict. Because the league's travel partner is not, is, is, is not Qantas. It's Virgin. He's working in, in the best interest of the game. But what if Qantas is the best partner? The, the clubs wanted Qantas and couldn't get it. Why not? Virgin came in with a greater offer and then re-signed. That's my point. So he's what? working in the best interest of the game. Now, well, tell me how Patrick Dangerfield is a conflict joining the commission. Because he receives. He doesn't put in. He's a player that receives. He's not adding to the game. Of course he plays, of course. But they're getting paid from the top down. So he's going to work for his best incentives. It's human nature. They don't kid me any other way, shape or form. Well, until I see, until I see an obvious conflict tabled... I'm potentially all for it. We'll keep going. Uh, there was a very big fight that happened over the weekend, Jake Paul and Nate Diaz. And we covered it last week, actually. Yeah, on centre in Dallas. Absolute spectacle. Um, the fight didn't li live up to its height. Nate Diaz was dropped. It wasn't much of it, just a temple shot. And his feet were all squared up. So, you know, he, uh, he, he didn't inflict too, too much damage. But Diaz did what he was going to do, always do. He came forward. He put pressure on Paul. He copped a lot of, absorbed a lot of punches. He's very durable. Everyone knows that. Anybody who's been watching Diaz last few years. So the fight was pretty much um, it was happened. A race. It happened the way, if you look at both fighting styles, it happened the way that people thought that in the game thought would happen because you got one guy who can absorb a lot of punishment, very durable. And does, he's not the most technically gifted boxer. And you've got another guy who's been trying to build himself up as a boxer, but all he's done is win against MMA guys who aren't boxers. So I didn't watch the full fight myself because I'm against these sort of gimmick fights because I think all they do is just rob, rob people of money. And um, But you did it and you had some thoughts. I'm surprised it was even sanctioned. And I know that we've seen... In the past, when Mayweather fought McGregor, but at least McGregor had enough skill to throw punches. At least he attempted to look like a boxer and change sports from being an MMA superstar to at least trying to box. Nate Diaz was flat-footed, looked like he'd never thrown a punch before. Yes, he was incredibly durable. Lasted the 10 rounds. Unbeknownst to me, I don't know how he did, but... Jake Paul, who's not even a professional boxer, I think he's had seven fights, bashed the absolute crap out of him. It was just, 
it became a farcical and a funny spectacle by way of Diaz trying to rouse the crowd, and he became the crowd favourite. But in terms of boxing as a spectacle, yes, it was entertainment, but, geez, it was rubbish. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, I'm very surprised that you're so surprised because that's what, he, that's what, that's what was expected. That's why they watched the fight. <laughs> I thought Diaz at least would have actually um, defended himself properly and or thrown a punch. Tony, look at Diaz as a fighter. Has he been much of a big puncher? He slaps. He's got. He's known for the stock to the slap. For, for God's sake, I mean, he's he's a ground. He's a guy who wears wears guys down, absorb a lot of punishment, very fit, very durable. Gets him on the ground, gone, finished. What he's done to Connor, what he's done to many others in his in his lifetime. That's been the Nate Diaz style for a long, long time, and it does not shock me whatsoever that the fight happened the way it did happen. Okay, did um, did everybody who paid for the PPV, the pay-per-view, and or attended that event in Dallas, were they ripped off? Yes. And by extension of that, how much did Jake Paul and Nate Diaz rip off the public? What were they paid? Well, official pur- purses were 500k each, uh, 500k to Nate Diaz, and two million US dollars to uh, Jake Paul. By the time the pay-per-views come in, I reckon Nate Diaz will end up with about two, two yep. million, and I, and I reckon Jake Paul will go between the seven and the ten mark. Seven to ten million. Yeah, that's a hell of a payday. One hell of a payday, and you know what? I take my hat off to the two fighters and the promoters, but don't bring us that crap again. <laughs> you probably watch the next one. <laughs> of course, because. I love boxing, but who doesn't? But you want to see entertainment, not rubbish. All right. There you go. Jake, make sure if, if you're listening, make sure next time you you put on a real fight, mate. Tony's Jake, not, not happy Jake, at all. Jake, to me and Ahmed, your fellow YouTube stars, give us something. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. All right. That's all for today. We're, we're out of time. It's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Tony. Once again, it's an absolute pleasure. Take care, everyone. We'll catch you all next week. See you, Ahmed.